Hey, I'm Jeffrey Masters. This is LGBTQ&A, where we get to know different members of the LGBTQ community. Today, I'm talking to Aaron Judge. Aaron is a comedian and the author of Vow of Celibacy. Stay tuned. Aaron, welcome to the show. Hi, Jeffrey. It is so great to be here. Thank you. Thank you. I really enjoyed the book. Thank you for reading it. Of course. I'm, I'm psyched that you read it. Yeah, it is the first book I've ever read that has a main character who is bisexual and plus size. Oh, wow. Yeah, all of Michael Chabin's characters are so skinny. <laughs> <laughs> I know that there are other characters like that out there, but yeah. I um, I mean, Roxane Gay just came out with a memoir. That's sure. true, though. Yeah, uh, sure. But uh, yeah, it was just I was reading it and just thinking like I cannot believe in two thousand years of literature that uh, and I read a lot of queer work that I've never read someone like this. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, my my friend Maris Kreisman, who is an uh, she's a writer and she also covers a bunch of book stuff. Um, she said like it shouldn't feel revolutionary to have this book now, but it still feels like it is. So yeah. I thought that was awfully nice, and it's um it's it is kind of surprising though. Yeah, because we've just been trained to identify with straight people and with in-shape people, and we're kind of taught that these are the stories that are worth telling. Yeah, and I think that, you know, bisexual women in particular are hypersexualized, and in our society, we don't um, think of people who are larger or plus-sized as being sexual. We actually desexualize those people. Yeah, that, and those messages are everywhere. Yeah, yeah. So, and I mean, I think the LGBTQ community can suffer some of the worst of that at times, so... Oh, of, uh, why, of body why, stuff. Oh, e- even women. Oh, yeah, for sure. I oh, think so. I primarily think of it as men. Well, I mean, for sure. I think that's really active and present. But I think that there's kind of a divide among uh, queer women where some are super body positive, And then there's plenty who are pretty, like, uh, not heteronormative, I don't want to say, but, like, strict or otherwise, like, um, confined in their view of what should be beautiful. Okay. As someone who dates all genders, do you find a difference in the way your body's viewed? Um, well, I mean, honestly, dating straight men <laughs> is generally pretty easy. They're pretty fluid with that stuff. Um, I date feminist men, so I don't really have an experience with people being like, you are a trophy, and I expect you to maintain a certain appearance. Um, and I think with women, it's been sort of a range. I've dated some women who were obviously, like, similar to the men that I've dated who were, like, totally positive about any body shape. And I've dated some women who were a little bit more concerned about appearances and wanted somebody who was more of a trophy. Oh, that's fascinating. It is. It is. Uh, the, the characters described as plus size, which I... some. I realize I don't always know what that means just because it's a big range and we use different words too that we are comfortable with. Um, what, is it weird to ask, like, what word do you, how would you like, describe your body? My own body. Yeah, just well, since it's an auditory like system we're talking about. <laughs> right, totally. So, I mean, I'm definitely plus size. I know a lot of women prefer the term fat. I don't really use that term often because, my, well, my body fluctuates and changes and I've found... People, when I say fat, they don't, they're like, don't say that about yourself. So not like in a way like, oh my gosh, girlfriend, like, don't say that about yourself, but just like, you don't qualify. So I mean, I think, I think it's difficult. I think, you know, fat women who are really, truly plus size, who are really, truly large have a very hard time in our society. I can shop at regular stores. Um, so I'm, I'm in a different position of privilege around size. 
Um, but I'm still large and I'm still like too big for TV and things like that. So um, it's a, uh, I'm 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 in this uh, zone where I think sort of like the main character. I'm I'm in between those worlds, but in terms of like shopping for clothes, I'm definitely plus size. Gotcha. I asked too because the way that we describe our bodies is often different than other people would. You know, so sure. we like can like also focus on like one part we don't like and say like, oh, I'm fat. Right. No, for sure. And I think I think that you know the way that dating apps and things like that distort the categories, like a little something extra versus like very curvaceous. Like people are people often use curvaceous or curvy as a euphemism for a larger woman, and I don't see myself as curvy. <laughs> like it's just not like what I am. So. I mean, it's a uh, it's it's an interesting thing to try to describe. I mean, I mean, people can look at pictures of me on the internet if they want to. <laughs> it's, it's such a weird thing to say. <laughs> yeah, you can describe my body yourself to yourself, however you want. Yeah, I mean, like for, I've I've always been more or less in shape, but recently I've, I I, mean, I was just like I like my body, and that's a new thing for me. So I'm actually trying to figure out if I've if my body has like quote unquote gotten better or if my brain has just adjusted to like see what's been there. Does that oh, make wow. sense? Does that sound weird? Abs- no, absolutely. I think that that's um, a great sort of phase to go through if you can get there. I think a lot of people, we go through adolescence and we dislike our bodies and we're taught that they're not acceptable in some way. Um, and I think in general, like when you, when you come into your own and when you start to appreciate your body for what it is, you start to see it more like other people do who don't immediately focus on your quote unquote flaws um, and who see you more holistically and see your positive attributes before whatever you might think of as your, you know, problem zones or <laughs> whatever. I mean, I think I think liking your body, no matter what size you are, no matter what your appearance is, is a privilege. Like it's something that people should strive to do no matter what their body looks like. Do you put yourself in that category? I do. I like my body. I don't always, I'm not always like completely like, I'm perfect. I wish no changes upon myself and I will look like this forever. Um, because I think one of the things that's difficult about living in my body is that it changes frequently. I don't know why, but I, I like my weight goes up and down and I am always, I'm always exercising. I'm always very physically active, but um, I guess other factors just confound that. So like I've had a range of body sizes throughout my adulthood and I have to feel comfortable at all of them, you know? So, um, that's sort of where I'm at. I think mostly what I like about my body, um, I broke my leg in a couple of places five years ago and that experience really taught me like, wow, my body's amazing. It heals itself. You know, like what my body can do on its most essential level is pretty miraculous. Yeah. And we think about it, we chop ourselves up into these, like, what, what, what about my abs and my biceps and my traps or whatever? But, you know, deep down, like, our bodies are constantly doing amazing things for us. I've never thought about that, but our ability to heal itself is, is miraculous. I chopped off my finger. Like, what I does chopped that mean? off, <laughs> I chopped off, like, I was cutting vegetables and I, like, chopped off a good, like, slice of my finger. Like, it was like a chunk. And it grew back, and I felt like Wolverine. Like, I was like, this is amazing. Oh, my God. Queer people are magical. I know. I know. We figured I think it out. That's, yeah. How big, wait, how big a chunk? Like a, like a half an inch? No, not quite. But I'd say, like, three centimeters. Okay. It was big. That's funny. Yeah. And it, and it grew all the way back with my fingerprint and everything. <laughs> 
I was like, wow. With you fluctuating weight, that's such a weird, I, I, I assume it's a weird experience to like always be in flux and like changing. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting. I talked to a lot of women who, you know, you go through a, some sort of change in your early thirties and I had had like a major injury that I was laid up for nine months at that time with my broken leg. So, you know, um, I think that that like happened at the same time. And so that kind of like confounded the whole thing. But if you look, if I look back at pictures of myself, there's always a lot of fluctuation and I'm not like actively dieting or actively exercising more. It's just sort of like my body's response to stress or something like that, um, that I can see in like my own history. And I think, you know, accepting that and like feeling like I can be comfortable with that is like another kind of huge, um, challenge because society wants us to stay the same or like have a society wants us to believe that we have a total and utter control over our body size that every single one of us this is a meritocracy gosh darn it and we all have the power to shape our bodies to be exactly what we want them to be and if we're not doing it we are lazy or failing or in some way morally bankrupt and i think you know knowing that i'm always kind of exercising and taking care of myself and eating well and that my um, my body changes in size, goes up and down, is something that like defies that sort of false narrative in society. Yes, and because people are like viewed as lazy, I feel like everyone then feels like they can give them advice and like feedback and critique them. Everybody's body works pretty differently. Like in my experience, like it's not it's not really straightforward for everyone. And um, I think in general, like fitness and exercise and keeping a level of wellness that is like your own realm of wellness is the best any of us can hope for. Yeah. Some people are going to be elite fitness kings and queens and may they thrive. Like hooray for them. CrossFit needs a business model. Like it's it's great for for them, but it's not for everybody. Yeah, and I um I've done a lot of work in the fitness industry and different diets work for different people. So, you know, one trainer does paleo and gets ripped and is like you are just not following this correctly. Right. And just like, well, that's not my body. Right. Yeah. And I mean, there are ways to kind of like be like, okay, well, food is, um, you know, food is the building blocks of my body and I'm going to use food that way. And that's a valid choice. But I think it's also a valid choice to be like, food is a social thing and I eat with my family and I prepare food my entire family wants to eat and I enjoy it with them. You know, I think that those are all really valid choices to make. I agree. I want to go back to something you said, which was that sexual uh, or uh, um, plus size people have sexual desire and are able to be desired. Cause I think that's radical. Like in our society today, you know, it's, it's radical in the media. That's in the, the media. Thing. Yes. That's in representation thing. in real life. Like it's pretty amazing. I know that there was like this episode of the Louis CK show that he got all this, like it was, it was very sort of talked about in the media because there was like a plus size woman, a larger woman that wanted to date him, his character. And he didn't want to date her. Um, and I read this article by this woman who who was uh, reading for the part. And in the part, she goes on this monologue about how no one wants her and how unfair it is. And she's like, so I'm kissing my sexy, fit husband goodbye as I go to this audition to play this girl who can't get a date. You know, and it's it's really unbelievable how shifted our view is in media when you can look around at the world and see people of different body types in relationships everywhere. I agree completely. Yeah. It's so distorted. It's like, even like in the media, you won't see 
a man in, in a heteronormative sort of coupling, you won't see a man who's shorter than a woman. And if he is, they will put him on a platform whenever they're standing next to each other. Whereas in the real world, there's plenty of men who are dating women who are taller than them. And a lot of these actors are themselves like they're the ones who are creating this content and they're shorter and they're like, let me look taller in this. It's like you can change the narrative right now. Yeah. You can change the narrative by letting everyone see that you're shorter than her. Yeah. But they don't do it. And that's why reading it in your book, I was like, oh, wow, I've never read about even a woman with, uh, not I mean women have sexual desires, but like it's it's not as talked about even, just women, not plus size or skinny, but like, you know, we judge women for that. Whereas in men, it's held up as a medal. Yeah, for I really wanted to, with this book, um, write a protagonist who is a woman and a, a, a female person who in, had her sexual desires sort of evolve and come out at like during her adolescence and during her early 20s. And that was like a really healthy thing for her. You know, it wasn't shaped by any sort of expectations of what she was supposed to be wanting or doing. It was shaped by like, you know, she liked kissing this person and then her body felt all kinds of ways, you know. And and I think that that sort of eruption of sexual desire is not talked about enough for girls and women. I agree. And I've known data points to back this up, but I believe that queer people were stunted in their adolescence because they oftentimes were not able to like express crushes and attraction and feeling. And then we got like messed up later on because we didn't learn um, early on, like what we were attracted to and what we liked and what we didn't like sexually. And we learned that it wasn't okay to express desire. And uh, at least for me, and I know that like it's uh, that thing that like we had to compensate for that later on. Yeah, I mean, I think of all the ways in which when I had crushes on girls growing up, it caused like abject terror. You know, it was like associated with fear, that feeling and um, how it took me a while to get over that when I was getting involved with women and um, just that feeling of anxiety because I grew up in the South. Um, I grew up partly in Brooklyn and partly in Texas, but I was coming of age very much in Texas and there was nothing scarier to me than the idea that I might like girls, you know, and it just seemed like a way to kind of be doomed to this part of society that was rejected or like exiled. Yes. And um, so all of those desires and sort of sensations and feelings, they they came at the exact same like in the exact same basket as all this fear and anxiety. Yes. Whereas when I liked boys, I was like, phew, <laughs> I'm so normal. Did you have a sex drive early on? I did. Really? I did. Yeah, I did. Um, I was, like, pretty into, like, making out and stuff when I was pretty young, like 14, 15. Wow. Because uh, back to the book, you wrote about teenagers engaging in sexual activity, and that makes people uncomfortable, even though I would deem it to be fairly normal. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's a weird kind of denial, right, that we're in, that, like, we all do that stuff in high school, and then when we get to be older, we're, like, horrified when high school kids do that stuff. And I know it's not everyone. I know not everyone is actually, like, feels that way or expresses themselves that way when they're in high school, but a lot of us do. Yes. And I don't think that it should be stigmatized. Yes. When we talk about bisexual women, it often people who are less informed, you know, describe it as a phase. And this woman is actually straight. Did you ever have doubts like that? Uh, no. Oh, really? I mean, when your body responds to people, like, it tells you what you are, right? Like, it, if, you, if we're going to define sexuality and sexual orientation as, as, a, as a characteristic of a person... Um, then like my, I knew that I liked both boys and girls and that I was never going to be different than that. Oh, because it's not intellectual. 
It's just like a, it's a feel, literal like yeah, it's a physical fe- feeling. Yeah, and and I think and I think intellectually it's there as well, or at least uh, you know, in my sort of imagination, I would say it's there as well. But like I, I've always sort of taken my body at its word in its like responses to things. Oh, I love that phrasing. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> Again, it's about being comfortable with your body. It loops back to the other thing that we were talking about about size and everything else. If you if you don't see your body as like here's a statue of me that I have to sculpt, you know, and like my head lives on top of it. And, you know, your body's giving you information. It's like, if you have a good relationship with your body, you can kind of feel that stuff and like let your sexuality emerge that way. Yeah. I think that's, and it's nice that you're able to trust that too. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's ideal. I think Yeah, for me, like my instincts and like intuition comes in like, uh, like temperatures. Like I get like very hot when I like have like, I know I need to like do an action. And like when I am doing something I don't like, I get like very cold and I can like feel that change. That's amazing. I think, I think intuition, first of all, I think intuition is feminized. So we reject it. Um, you know, it's like, well, your brain is your masculine, rational, calm, you know, economy kind of part of you of yourself and your body is feminine and stupid. But like we get so much information in our bodies. If people would listen to like their gut feelings about getting into certain situations or taking certain jobs, they would be much happier. Yes. And I think that we have trained to like push those feelings down. For sure. For sure. We're, we're taught to ignore them. And I think we're taught to believe that they're misleading us. Yeah. I, I don't want to make this about Trump, but when Trump won the Republican nomination, um, I had this intense feeling in my body of like, oh my God, this this is very bad and this is realer than I thought. And then the rational part of my brain was like, ha ha, don't worry about it. And um, when he won, I was like, oh my God, I felt that. Yeah. The dread. Yeah. The dread. Like yeah. knowing this could work out. Yeah. It was, It. I think there was a lot of that around that time. I remember election night feeling just like this sinking feeling in my body and feeling this like, just like all of everything in my torso just kind of like walled up and yes. was like, okay, time to, time to, time to fight, time to like protect yourself. Yeah. And it was, uh. It was really a dreadful feeling. Of course. I think that when we talk about sexuality too, uh, you're saying we feminize our intuition. We've like masculinized sexuality and like sexual feelings and in that terms of sexuality. And I was thinking about the velvet rage and how that is like outlying why gay men are just messed up in uh, different phases of life. And it's very detailed. And that doesn't, we don't have like a text like that. I, I don't actually, I, I don't agree with this book, but there, I feel like there's less written about female sexuality because when we discuss queer women, we talk about U-Hauls and cats, right. you know, we don't talk about, um, in the book that she has, uh, uh, the character takes a vow of celibacy because of toxic relationships. And she's trying to figure that out. And, you know, we it's t- spoken less about for women, I believe. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think it's because it's supposed to be normal. You know, like I think that a, sort of the standard relationship narrative that's offered um, in, in many realms of society that are the most patriarchal are very like you're supposed to be kind of like not important in your relationship as a woman, you know, and you're supposed to objectify yourself. You're supposed to make yourself desirable and then like conform and like fit yourself into this um, expectation. And I think with with queer women, like there's all kinds of interesting texts that exist out there about um growing up as a 
like having your female queer sexuality emerge. Like there's Stone Butch Blues, which is yes. an amazing, an amazing story that is about being working class and being trans, but in an era where um, gender expression of that realm was considered being butch. And um, it's interesting because we're we're in this sort of transitionary moment. Like Eileen Miles talks about how she might have been trans in, if she had been in this generation. Um, but instead she identified as like a hardcore butch lesbian. And you read sort of the stories of people like that who were arrested for wearing three pieces of men's clothing and um, you see the seeds of like, you know, people who are just trying to be themselves and um, having not just the weight of homophobia, but also of patriarchy come down on them. Just like you're not allowed to be part of this. Yes. I find it fascinating reading about the older generations and what they and a lot of like not a lot, but like a many narratives in trans narratives I read, they, they talk to their like older butch queer women relatives and those women are saying we probably would have transitioned, but we didn't know it was an option. Right. Yeah. It was a different, it was a different view of what that meant and what it was, um, what those feelings and those impulses about your body and yourself and your identity meant you quote unquote were. Yeah. And, and tell me if I'm wrong, but I feel like even fairly recently, let's say like 25, 30 years ago, when you were, came out as queer as a female, you were a butch or a femme and you had like two options. And then now I feel like it, they're more of descriptor words. They're not an adjective. It's an, or they're not nouns or adjectives, you know? Yeah. I mean, people still think that though. Like, I think that there are some people who like, I, I remember, um, I was at a lesbian club with I was talking to this woman in the bathroom and I was ex- trying to explain to her how two of my exes were involved with each other like two of my ex-girlfriends were involved with each other and she was like super femme and she dated super butches and she was like that's impossible what you're <laughs> telling me right now it doesn't make any sense and I was like okay well we come from different communities I guess but um you know I think I think some people like you know when they come out to their parents they're like are you a butcher a femme you know they don't they don't they they that's their like, they don't say, are you butch or feminine? They say, are you, like, a feminine type of lesbian? Or are you more the man in the relationship? Wait, you've heard people asking that? Yeah, for sure. Oh, fascinating. Like, people from not, like, just one generation above mine. Is that them inquiring about sexual positions? Because I, I find for, like, queer men, it's always, like, top or bottom, you know? But is that for that women, or is that just, like, lifestyle almost? I think it's lifestyle. I think it's gender roles. They're like, okay, in any couple, somebody has to be the man and somebody has to be the woman. So, you know, and what that means is somebody has to have a job and do the housework and grill, and the other person has to be nurturing and be pretty. So even if it's a same-sex couple or, or non-binary people, someone needs to fulfill the man role and the woman role. That's what most people, I think a lot of people expect. I don't want to say most, but there's yeah. certainly there's certainly a, a bunch of people out there who expect that. I want to I pause you because I love broad generalizations, so feel free to just generalize the heck <laughs> Most out of it. people who like broad generalizations <laughs> are mostly wrong. I think that this goes back to what we were talking about in terms of 2,000 years of literature has, and, and movies and representation has taught us so many things that we didn't know and that includes uh, a, a couple needs to have like a one in power and one not in power yeah which is like dumb yeah. because when you cooperate you can actually get a lot more done when you have a peer relationship it's like you're you thrive more i agree and my, one of my favorite parts about being queer and dating queer people is the equality in a relationship yeah i mean i think that it's a model for a lot of people to see queer relationships where 
the assumption is that it will be a peer relationship and that you're going to cooperate. You know, um, I think, you know, growing up, I grew up in a household where, you know, my, my mother and father got divorced when I was young. And then when I was nine years old, my mother um, got involved with another woman. So I was raised by my mom and my stepmom, basically. They couldn't be married, obviously, at the time. But, like, Wait, I... Sorry, you said got involved with... But they were in a, they were in a relationship, right? Oh, yeah. Okay. They were together. Okay. Yeah. They I, weren't, like, doing... They weren't a business team. <laughs> got involved with... I was like, was that, like, a two-nighter? Okay. <laughs> no, no, no. It was an 18-year relationship until my stepmom passed away. But um, my my mom and my my her partner were a model of a really healthy relationship to me, whereas my mother and my father were not. So, you know, it was it was much more um, inspiring, I guess, to me to see the two of them because they were so respectful and they were like best friends. Yeah. You know, and why wouldn't you want that with your partner? You have to live with them. <laughs> you have to like hang out. It's like a long, lifelong slumber party. It better be your best friend. Yeah. I also feel like when you come out to do a lot of soul searching and to like figure out that, yes, this is in fact who I am and that that depth you look for in a relationship and like it allows you to be more open with somebody usually. I think my book is also about coming out, but not as gay. Like I think coming out is I don't want to say a privilege, but I think queer people who do come out go through a developmental phase that I think is really great for everyone. Like what you just said, you have to do a lot of soul searching. You have to figure out who you are. And coming out is about being like, look, everybody in my life of origin, this is who I am. And I'm going to be this person, whether you're cool with it or not. And oftentimes those people are like, we're totally cool with it. And sometimes they're like, we're not cool with it. And you have to go out on your own. And I honestly think that that's something literally everybody should do. I agree. You know, like whether you're queer or not, whether you're the straightest person in the world, like you still need to look around at everybody in your life and be like, you have to accept me for myself or else I have to get away from you. Yeah. And it was fascinating reading the book because the main character had... Uh, has come out. It's a it's a like a non issue that the, the non issue that the book deals with. Right. Uh, we have enough coming out stories. <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> yeah, it's kind of interesting. Like I, her coming out story is not the central thing in the exactly. book. Exactly, and I, I really enjoyed that. But so she more or less has no secrets in her life, and yet she's dating somebody who's keeping her secret. Always. That's like what she figures out is she always dates people who keep her a secret, and um, you know that has so much to do with her internalized body shame. You know, more more in many cases than her internalized queer shame. Um, and I think that being a secret is sort of the theme because her best friend is uh, an anonymous blogger and she has to decide whether she's going to reveal herself and her true identity to all of her readers. And the reason she doesn't want to sort of comes out during the course of the book. It has to do with her family of origin. But, uh, you know, this other woman, the, the, her best friend stays. Um, Natalie is the protagonist, stays as her best friend. Stays is just like, you know, it's not about sex. Well, it's a little bit about sex for her, but mostly it's about like she's she's afraid to reveal herself, her true identity. And that's a kind of coming out. And she's terrified of it. Yes. Yes. Can we go back to your mother for a second? Of course. Okay. So you, you were living in Brooklyn and moved to Texas. Yes. Um, uh, to make broad generalizations, I would assume that Brooklyn will be a safer place for two women who are raising a family. Why did they move to Texas? I'm so glad you asked me that question because here's the thing about Brooklyn. Um, when you're from Bro- the kind of Brooklyn that I'm from, um, and I'm sure many listeners can recognize this coming from big cities, when you're from like sort of like, I was from a sort of 
urban Catholic, quasi-ethnic Irish-Italian community, right? Where everybody knew everybody and everybody was up in everybody else's business. And it was extremely insular. And people were gossipy and people were almost like small town mentality. And so um, people don't think about that when they think of Brooklyn. They think of like Park Slope and Lena Dunham and like, you know, that wasn't my Brooklyn. Like my Brooklyn was Catholic school and um, the parish and people living in multi-generational households, including both my mother and her partner. They both lived with their parents when they met um, because my mom was divorced and she had me. Um, And so, I mean, it's a very different picture than most people have, but I think it's probably the most common experience in New York City. Fascinating. Yeah. So it's, I mean, it's, it's an interesting thing to grow up there in those kinds of situations and to see like my parents, my cousins, my aunts and uncles who continue to grow up in that, like you can disappear into the city and do whatever you want and be whoever you want. But if you want to live authentically in your day-to-day life, you kind of have to leave if you're going to break the rules. Wow. And not to make assumptions about small towns in the South, but did they find acceptance in Texas? I mean, what they found in suburban Dallas was anonymity, right? Like your neighbors don't bother with you in the suburbs. Like people aren't up in each other's business. So it wasn't a small town. It was a suburb of like three quarters of a million people. And um, the neighbors were perfectly friendly and maybe made assumptions, maybe didn't. But um, it was fine. Fascinating. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was not unthreatening, you know, like I felt, I felt anxiety that if any teachers or anybody in my school community found out that my mom was involved in a lesbian relationship, that they might call CPS or something like that. You know, I had really Christian teachers, but like there was no context in which they would suss that out, you know? Wow. Like my mom, my, my stepmom just didn't come around to like, you know, school things. And that was just understood. Well, sometimes she would come, but it wasn't like she was at PTA meetings being like, how's my daughter doing? You know, so that was that was it was it was cool. Like it was sort of like, wow, brushable under the rug, I guess. Yeah. And then I would love to make like a a broad stroke to your own sexuality. But so many queer people raise kids that are straight like that. I feel like that can't like do you feel like it had an effect on you? I don't know. I mean, I don't like I said, like having um same-sex couple parents, like, there, there's less anxiety about coming out because you know your parents are going to accept you. But um, I, don't, I don't know if it had an influence. I can't really say what the origins of my, of my sexual orientation are. I don't know if any of us can, right? Because right. <laughs> you have no comparison to. You have no comparison. I mean, I know I, I have a good friend who's a twin, and his brother is not gay, and he's gay, you know? And it's just, it's, it's fascinating. I know plenty of families where there's one gay kid, and they're super different from everybody else. And I know plenty of families where there's more than one gay kid. Yeah. So it's really hard to say what happens. It's just so easy to draw these connections between one family, and then those connections don't ever replicate within other families, you know? Yeah. That, that line you that you draw sure yeah no i mean it's all anecdotal so it's not yeah. really scientific evidence i don't know if we have any data sets that show us where the gay people come from because we don't know who's gay like you know yeah. if you look at all the data on like 
searches on the internet in Mississippi, like, there's a lot of gay dudes there, but there's not a lot of people who answer that they're gay on their census. Yes. So <laughs> where are we going to get that data from Google? Did your mothers identify as gay? My, um, I don't know about my mom's partner. My mom identifies now, and I don't know if she ever really identified this way before, but at some point she, she identified as bisexual, and that's how she sees herself. Fascinating. Yeah. I, I just think compared to my experience of not knowing another queer person, and I, for some reason, didn't watch Well and Grace, so I didn't, never saw one on TV, and uh, just knowing that I'm sure there's somebody out there who's like this, but I don't have confirmation, compared to you having a queer person in your home. Two. Two. Well, three, if you count me. <laughs> and I don't know about the dog and the cat, but they seemed a little... We should, we'll get them on the show. Uh, <laughs> but like to have that example in your house, that's wild. Yeah, I mean, it is. And it's, it's no, certainly normalizing, you know? Like, I, I never was like, oh, like, what would this even look like? It's like, well, here it is. Yes. <laughs> when were you growing up in Texas? Um, I moved there from Brooklyn in 1990, and right. I left Texas for college in 1998. Okay. I, I, I asked because the 80s and into the 90s was the AIDS crisis. Sure. Was that, an, and we always talk about that involving men, like as a home of women and queer women, did that have an effect? And like, It was really outside of my purview. Like I really didn't think about it. And you know, the weirdest thing was when I got to college, I started studying it and I studied ACT UP a bit. And I was really horrified that I grew up in New York City in the 80s and had very little idea that this was happening. You know, like, I was I was a kid. I was seven, eight, nine years old. But I knew about, like, the Berlin Wall. I knew about a lot of things that were going on. And I didn't know that tens of thousands of men in my city were dying. Like, I mean, it's kind of incredible to, to remember how sheltered I was. I had a lot of family members who were in the – they're nurses – um, and some of them were working with like the first AIDS patients in on in the the village in Manhattan. And to know that now, and to know that I had no idea until I was like in my thirties about that, is pretty remarkable. Were, were they sheltering you, or was it just like less reported and talked about? I think it's a little bit of both. I remember vaguely like when ACT UP protested in um, St. Patrick's Cathedral. But I don't remember knowing what it was about. And um, I didn't realize, like, how much people were ignoring this crisis, in including, like, the leadership of the city and the government. Yeah. I, I just have friends who's, you know, someone's mom had a brother or an uncle or a friend who died of AIDS. And so when they came out, it was like, oh, my God, you will get AIDS as well and you will die. And I did not have anything in, like that in my family. But I have to I'm now starting to consider whether or not my parents were well read enough to know about the AIDS crisis and to assume it only targeted gay men and to just like kind of make that connection on their own. You know, I met a woman very recently who told me, like, she's from, I think, West Virginia. And she told me when she came out to her mother, and she's like my age, I'm 36. And her mother broke down and was like, you're going to get AIDS. And she had to be like, oh, mom, like, there's so many things I need to explain to you right now. But like, there was a lack of understanding of what that meant. And like, why gay people were associated with that. And, and for her mom, it was just like, oh, if you're gay, like, it's something that can befall you yeah. magically. Um, which is really interesting. But I mean, I think that the other interesting thing is that my mom and my stepmom met in Brooklyn and they were part of these sort of like quasi lesbian communities of like people who were like, play softball together frankly and like do a few other things that were like associated with like gay women's culture but 
most of them weren't identified as lesbian. Some of them were married to men, but they were all kind of paired off. There was always like an alpha and a beta and like they were like best friends. And um, they talked about my mom told me years later about how interesting this community of women were because they were not lesbian identified, but they were like hanging out in groups of women doing like super butch activities together. And it just sort of came about organically. Wow. These weren't people who like read the magazines or thought about themselves as being gay or like had any kind of sense of queer culture as being part of their lineage. They just were doing what they wanted to do. And, and for lack of better words, are they were like intense friendships? Oh yeah. That's yeah. That's what they were. It was kind of like romantic friendships or they wouldn't say romantic, but like my best friend, you know, like, yes. we're super besties. Because I asked because another thing that I'm fascinated by in terms of LGBTQ history is that, uh, certain gr- groups are like gay people and men especially are more prominent and like uh, uh, vocally were louder because oftentimes they exerted that and um, and these labels were new and people didn't always label and identify themselves as queer so it's hard to demand rights when you know you don't identify as queer right I mean I think that there's tons of people who are out there having sex with people of the same gender yeah that are not identifying as queer in any way right now Yes. You know, and so like, it's like, who are we, right? It's an interesting question for those of us who are out and are like, I am queer. I am bisexual. Like, who who among us isn't bisexual? <laughs> like, I don't know what the, what the answer to that is. I don't know how my experience of being me differs from everybody else. Some people might just be like, yeah, I feel that way. I'm just never going to do anything about that. You yes. know? Yeah, I want to have, I, we all want to make out with our best friend. You just don't do that. And it's like, is that person queer? Do I co-opt their life and say, well, you're queer on the inside? Like, I don't get to say that about them. Of course. So it's it's interesting, like, these categories and how they fall. And when people don't label themselves or don't have a consciousness of themselves as being queer. Yeah. When you date men, do you feel like you need to talk about your queerness and exert it a little bit more because you're, like, quote unquote, in a heterosexual couple? Um, Perceived to be. Well, I mean, there's been a very, like... I am, I'm Polly. I don't know if that has come up in your research, <laughs> Jeffrey. It did not. I'm Polly, so I'm married. I have a husband, oh. and I have a girlfriend. Um, and so my husband and I have been together for a really, really long time, and I haven't really been involved with many other dudes, like, outside of my relationship, a couple, but not, like, and whether they, like, know I'm queer or not, like, I don't really care that much. Like, if I'm seriously involved with somebody, it needs to be something that they understand. Of course. I think the bigger thing is I have to tell them that I'm poly, you know, or that I'm in an open relationship so that they sort of are aware of, of that context in which we are, you know, getting involved with each other. Yes. I, I find that poly works and looks different for everybody. So are you guys all dating each other? Are you dating people separately? Like, how does that work for you? Well, like, my husband and I got married um, nine years ago. So we've been in a relationship for, like, 14 years. And it's very much, like, a relationship, like, it's a commitment. Um, and we both kind of are involved with people other than each other. Um, and it's taken different forms, but about... Four years ago, I started seeing a woman pretty seriously. And so she's my girlfriend. He and her are friends, but they're not involved with each other. And um, it's all great so far. So um, that's sort of our situation. But it's not like a thruple. I never know how to pronounce that word. Thruple. Thruple. So it's like couple with a thru. Yes. Thruple. Thruple. I look at it and I'm always like, thruple? Absolutely not. (laughs) That's (laughs) unthrupulous. 
<laughs> uh, four years is very strong. Yeah, yeah. It's great. It's great. She's a comic, too. So we get to do shows together. And, oh, fun. Um, when I did my book tour, she came with me. And we did comedy shows at bookstores. And it was super fun. Wow. Yeah. I, I think that it's good to hear successful poly stories in the media as well. Yeah. Because so many people can roll their eyes at it. Yeah, and, like, you know, it's, again, like, it's not for everybody, and I wouldn't ever say, like, you know, everybody should think about it, but, you know, it's about human freedom, and, um, you know, I got involved with my husband when I was 22 years old, and I love him, and I really wanted to be with him, but I also didn't want to, like, sign up for lifelong commitment at 22, like, I don't think that that's that crazy, so, um, I mean, it was definitely a lifelong commitment, but it's not a monogamous one. Was that discussed from the beginning or do you guys find polyamory? It, we were open from the beginning. Wow. Yeah. I find that the poly people I know that uh, successfully execute polyamory, uh, for lack of better words, are the great communicators in my life. And so they're able to t- discuss everything and discuss what makes them comfortable and not comfortable. And it's the ones who are kind of like, don't ask, don't tell, where I see it falling apart. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's... When you when you are open about your insecurities and you don't try to hide, like I think a lot of people's strategy in relationships for dealing with insecurities is to like play it close to the vest. And it's like, just be honest, you know, be honest with yourself, be honest with the other person and talk about what you can and can't handle. And like, that's important. And you can, that can evolve too. You can be like, I, I can't handle this right now, maybe in six months. And then see if you, you know, be flexible. Um, But I think I think that, yeah, communication is really key. I think just being we're just super honest with each other, you know, and um, I feel really relaxed and chill. And I I feel like we don't have secrets. Cool. You seem like you uh, would be good at that. Speaking honestly. Yeah. You know, it's kind of like maybe like the cult of compulsive honesty that is stand up comedy is like primed me for that. But I also um, I also really do think like having to keep a secret as a kid. Which, like, you know, my mom didn't want me to tell my father that she was involved with this other woman. So, and I wasn't, my mother wasn't out to our extended family. She wasn't out to my grandmother, who I was very close to. So I had this secret from a very young age, and it sucked. It was really hard. And I think that having to keep a secret as a kid, first of all, very common among stand-up comics. Very common among stand-up comics that they had a story that was a secret that they weren't allowed to tell as a kid. And then they became these, like, honest people who had to tell everybody everything. Oh, I like that better, the phrasing of everyone had a secret versus everyone had, like, a fucked up childhood. Yeah, no, it's like, I I mean, I don't know if it's everyone, but it's one of those patterns. There's weird patterns in stand-up comedy. Yeah. Like, there's a lot of stand-up comics who are, like, the youngest of a big family whose siblings are all, like, 15 years older than them. Wow. It's a weird common thing wow you talk about bisexuality on stage i do and and, and, like again it shouldn't feel radical but it's like someone's publicly discussing bisexuality and i've never seen that on a comic set before yeah there's a lot of comics now who are talking about it but when i first started there were very few and the ones arguably that were out bisexual like you know margaret cho talks about having sex with women and andy dick was always sort of talking about his his sort of sexual um you know specialness <laughs> he has a, I, I guess he has a lot of desires but he, sexual specialness that's yeah. my new favorite term sexual, yeah you need to add another letter for sexual <laughs> specialness to the acronym but um but yeah i i really um i i was out there just saying the word bisexual and since then like a lot of comic i see a lot of comics of like the millennial generation identifying that way yes 
I, I love the st- statistics about young kids these days because so many identify as queer. Yeah, I mean, it's I think it's the internet. You know, I think it's the internet giving people vocabulary for what's going on with their brains and their bodies and their feelings when they're like 11, 12 years old. I think it's just like also the internet reminds them that they're not alone. Exactly. Yeah. It gives them community. It gives them commonality. And then, you know, sometimes I worry that people get too into identity and labeling themselves. Um, Like poly to me, like poly is a hard word for me. I don't really love the term because it's it doesn't it's not very defining there's so many different approaches to it. Um, I'm, I'm, I, it's the way that people understand what my lifestyle is the best at this point. But sometimes people conflate polyamory with an orientation like, oh, well, you were born poly and that's just who you are. And I'm like, uh, this feels like choice. <laughs> it feels like my choice. Like, I don't, I don't know if that's something that some people are more inclined to on some sort of innate level, but I see a lot of younger people being like, thank you for teaching me about polyamorous people and how they, how you are and how it is to feel polyamorous for your whole life. And it's like, well, it's more like what I'm doing. (laughs) That's so funny. Yeah. Oh my God. Do you remember your first joke or like an early joke from comedy? Oh my goodness. I remember my first successful joke, um, which I still tell a lot because it's so, it's such a pithy, quick one-liner. Um, I, t- I say I'm bisexual. If you don't know what that means is you're my type. And people feel relieved when they hear that joke. Um, <laughs> but it's also like when I think of the first set that I ever did, it was sort of um, one thing I can say for sure is when what you think of as stand up comedy is really different from what it is in practice. And that's pretty much everybody's experience being on stage for the first time. What does that mean? Like you think you watch it for years, you think it's one thing, you get on stage and it's just something else. Are you able to describe what that something else is? Well, when you admire comics like I did and do who tell stories and are just sort of people think that it's like being the really entertaining member of your group who tells the best stories and um, they don't realize like what a punchline is and that they have to be throughout the whole thing and that you have to get punchlines really early and that you have to have a lot of economy of language and that some people do. Some people are just really like savants of comedy and they get it from like right out the gate. But I was one of the ones who was like, oh, this is much different and harder than I thought it was going to be. That's good to hear though. Because I I hate seeing people do things that make make it look easy. And I think, ah, they were born with that. It's nice to hear it's hard work. Oh, comedy is really hard work. And there are, like, a handful of people who are, like I said, just amazing. They get it from the very beginning. But even people who you think of as just the most natural, amazing comedians struggled to try to figure out what it was to make people laugh. They tend to say, like, it takes 10 years. How long did you, until you felt, like, comfortable? Um, I'll, can I text you when I feel comfortable? Absolutely. (laughs) We'll trade (laughs) numbers after. I've been doing comedy for 15 years and I'd say that I started to feel really comfortable. I did, I think I did my first hour when I was eight years in. Okay. And like that, that was like a turning point. Great. 15 years. I don't know. You're behind. Am I? No, no. Am I? An hour is so much like mental energy. No, (laughs) I know. And standing on stage for a long time talking to people is like when you're trying to entertain them and keep them like interested, 
is uh, it's it's high stakes. And aren't you also paying attention to like, the auditory cues of like a lot of coughing and like whispering and like oh I'm losing their attention and don't you have to be aware of everything constantly? I mean, like that's your first realm of engagement. Like your your jokes are in the back of your head. What's actually happening in the room is what you're focused on, and you're kind of like in this realm talking and saying words that you know are like and you're you're trying to respond and you're trying to be on your toes but i'm always vigilant of what's happening around wow yeah i I think that you probably were trained in vigilance growing up queer (laughs) you know it all comes back to that yeah a lot of vigilance um a lot of vigilance also growing up with queer parents yes you know just like will my friends know like how many slumber parties can i have before they figure it out oh my god i can't believe you had to keep that secret it was hard. It was hard. And, like, there was no model for coming out, right? Like, yeah. I mean, you know, growing – you said earlier growing up with queer parents, like, it must have been normalizing. But I came out to my grandmother before my mother did. And um, that was crazy because my grandmother – like, people who are homophobic, they will not see gay in front of their face because if they love you, they're not going to believe you're something that they think is bad. Yes. Even if all the signs are there. You know, because they to them, the signs aren't that you are in a long term relationship with a member of the same sex. The signs are that you're some kind of pervert or some kind of deviant and they love you and they they have tenderness for you. They're not going to see that in you. And that is why it's so important to come out and label yourself so people know that people that they love are also queer and it's harder to hate. Yeah, (laughs) I mean, you know, people talk a lot about how the needle has moved so fast on gay rights. And I think it's people coming out to their families and people being like, I don't like that. Oh, wait, my nephew? Okay, it's fine. Yes. You know? And it's a, it's, it's not instantaneous, but it, it gets the ball rolling pretty quickly. I agree. Um, thank you for coming in. This has been so much fun. Yeah, this has been awesome. Thank and you. This is a great, great show that you have here. <laughs> well, I'm so really glad that you that. do it. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, if you want to find out more about you, should we send to your website, your Twitter? What do you want to plug? Um, definitely my website, erinjudge.com, because that's where you can find links to buying the book and my Twitter and Fantastic. my shows, all that stuff. And the book we said is Vow of Celibacy. Yeah. Fantastic. And I'm on Twitter, JeffMasters1. Uh, that's the easiest way to contact me if you want to suggest a guest at all. Also, if you want to help us out which why wouldn't you um leaving us five stars and a comment on itunes is the number one way and guess what you can do for free all right we'll see you next week bye from executive producers maria menounos kevin undergaro phil svitek and the entire AfterBuzz tv staff we would like to thank you for listening to the AfterBuzz tv network to watch or listen to other after shows and post comments or questions, be sure to visit AfterBuzzTV.com. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this has been a presentation of AfterBuzz TV. The views expressed herein are those of the host only and do not necessarily reflect the views of AfterBuzz TV or its owners or principals. 